It's just not possible to gain that much in value that quickly with declining revenue. And that's when I really had the epiphany that investing was not about stocks and bonds. Investing is about innovation. The belief is if there's a new piece of information, that it will be instantly incorporated into the price of the stock or the bond or whatever. But that's not how people change their minds. Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Sid Chararia is a private investor and portfolio manager in Asia Equities. Having served in senior investment roles at multi-billion dollar funds, Sid CV boasts a stint at Goldman Sachs, working in their technology investment banking unit. Having regularly featured on CNBC and the Goldman Alumni Network, amongst others, Sid presents an eloquent description of his evaluation framework, explaining how he systematically analyzes a company's price and its resilience to what he calls the risk of impermanence. Having worked in Asia for 15 years, growing up in the region too, Sid intimately understands the nuances of Asia's corporate culture. Sid offers his outlook for the regional equities, unpicking the effects of regulatory crackdowns on China's technology heavyweights, including Alibaba. However, it was his analysis of a 100-year-old Japanese company that caught Warren Buffett's attention. And this is where we start the interview. Enjoy. Welcome, Sid. It's great to have you on the show. So whereabouts are you talking to us from? Well, thanks for inviting me, Hayden. Um, I'm actually uh, near Washington, D.C. Uh, in the U.S., um, so I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, great. Yeah, I'm actually working from home today. Lots of tube and rail strikes, unfortunately, in London. So that's uh, prevented me from getting into the office. Um, but yeah, let's get cracking straight into the intro question. So as all Opto Sessions listeners will know, we like to start with a question that won't necessarily flow chronologically but it will give listeners an early indication of one of the focuses of today's interview. And that question revolves around a, a rare response you managed to elicit from Warren Buffett back in 2013. Uh, and that was based on a letter and thesis you wrote on Kobayashi Pharmaceutical. So talk to us about that experience and, and what did Buffett have to say? Yeah, well, thanks again, Hayden, for having me today. Um, so in 2013, I just left Goldman tech a banking um, and was investing my own money. And uh, I stumbled across this 125-year-old Japanese business called Kobayashi Pharmaceutical. At the time, it was just about a $2 billion market cap company. What was amazing was it had no real coverage. There was a one-pager from a sell-side analyst in this company I mean, just, just to put, put it in perspective, uh, dividends and profits had grown for 25 years. And this company had a history of repurchasing shares during the 2008 financial crisis. The company had high returns on capital, which far exceeded cost of capital, which is near zero in Japan, as you know. So there was large value creation. Um, what was really interesting and why it caught my attention was it had just divested its wholesale business, more asset intensive business. And so there was a drop in sales. So it wouldn't come up in the screens because sales growth would show that it was very sluggish because it was a large drop. But there was a corresponding increase in margins and cash flow. So essentially what was happening, Hayden, was here was this great business in Japan. It was a cash cow. Change was happening. Uh, it had a clear track record, but there was no coverage. And I found that like just bizarre. And so uh, what this company does 
is um, they create niche products, everyday products that Japanese consumers love. Low unit prices, repeatable transactions. So it's kind of like what Buffett likes, right? Coca-Cola, Wrigley, Chewing Gum. In fact, Kobayashi was as old as Coca-Cola and Wrigley Chewing Gum when I found it. It's a 135-year-old company today, and it survived many crisis periods. Two world wars, the Sino-Japanese War, Great Depression, the Japanese boom and bust, etc., and no one was covering it. And so as I did my research, um, what I found was this met many of the things that Warren Buffett looks for. The icing on the cake was the culture of the company. Hated, which was very, which was very unique and different from most Japanese companies. This company had a very open culture where junior employees are called on each month to provide ideas for new products and sort of that culture of creating new hit products and new products are, are about 22%. You can't copy the culture and really the incentive structure again was aligned to ROIC. The stock was trading at six to seven times my estimate of free cash. So I wrote the idea up. I sent it to uh, Mr. Buffett's office. I mailed it from Hong Kong at the time where I was living. And to my surprise, I received an email back from Mr. Buffett's assistant with Mr. Buffett's handwriting saying, Sid, it's a good company. We're looking for businesses like this one, meaning Kobayashi, that we can buy control of on a friendly basis. Uh, keep your eyes open. So since then, just to put it in perspective, Hayden, Kobayashi's beat the Dow, the S&P, all the Asian markets. It's trounced the Nikkei. It was uh, beating the NASDAQ up until I think late 2020. And it's compounded about mid-20s. I think it's retraced a little bit this year. Um, final point I'd like to add there, as you know, in August 2020, Mr. Buffett bought stakes in um, leading Japanese companies, mm. uh, Maruveni, Mitsubishi. So I'm not surprised with his interest in Japan, given the century old companies that exist, cash cows that exist um, and at cheap valuations. Yeah, fantastic. Really fascinating. And there's a couple of points I want to dig into, and not least just covering sort of Asia markets more generally. We want to talk about the tech drawdown, obviously, in Asia, but also point out some more positive signs for Asian markets and the specific companies where you can find good value. But before we do that, let's circle back and kind of introduce you, I suppose, to the listeners and cover your background. I read that you've, you've worked in Asia for over 15 years, working in senior investment roles at multi-billion dollar funds. And you grew up in India, too, with a family business background. So to what extent do you think real on-the-ground experience is essential to investing effectively in Asia equities? That's a great question, Hayden. So my focus is to generate the highest potential IRR I can. And the investment process that makes sense to me is investing in the greatest businesses in the world at extraordinary prices. I don't believe it's a smart thing to limit yourself to one specific country because of reasons we can discuss later. So I've created a framework through tens of thousands of hours of reading, as well as a framework that I've created to focus all my time on the world's top 1% companies. Now, Asia is a natural place for me. I've spent a lot of time there, worked there for 15 years. I started my career in Merrill Lynch, you know, I moved to Hong Kong around the boom days in 2006, seven, and then quickly the financial crisis hit. And I was enamored by, you know, 2008 was, as you recall, an extremely difficult period. And this is when I was making my biggest investment purchases 
while the sell side was just, I mean, there was just doom and gloom all over. And so it struck me that, you know, value investing was a natural place for me. I did my MBA at NYU, worked at a fund called Bandera Partners in New York. And then I realized, look, Asia is a place to be. I mean, Asia is more than half the world's population is uh, uh, in Asia, 60% of the world's companies, GDPs were growing, etc. And so to your question, what I will say is that beyond the assumption that you can analyze balance sheets, cash flow statements, and have common sense and the emotional tenacity for investing, which is important for success anyway, in Asia, what you need is that there are differences in disclosure requirements. The investor base is different. The governance is different. Accounting quality is different. You really want to understand all of these points. Um, You want to understand the people running the company. You know, I'll just spend like maybe a minute more. For example, in China, the retail participation is about 80%. As the world knows, uh, the Chinese government is really important if you're going to be investing in China. It's just how it works, right? Um, India, the people behind the business, meaning the promoters, the family-owned businesses, as you pointed out, I come from a family-owned business environment. The people make or break the thesis. The government is less important, unlike China. So what I look for is, is the board a bunch of yes men or women? In Japan, the local nuances are very different. The culture is extremely, is very different. Uh, growth is obviously not as great as China and India, but you have these cash cow companies like the trading companies that Warren Buffett bought or Kobayashi have inefficient balance sheets. And then you've got this activism going on from foreign uh, private equity funds. And ASEAN, Southeast Asia, well, each country is different, Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam. So I think it's essential that you have on the ground experience uh, in Asia. Um, I don't think you can just sit in New York and run screens and invest based on that because you're just missing the local uh, market nuances. Yeah, absolutely. No, that makes complete sense. And we've talked about your time at Bandera there. Obviously, you had a fun run by Jeff Graham, author of 2016 bestseller, Dear Chairman, which I'm sure a lot of listeners will recognize. Um, I just wondered, and maybe you've answered it already, but to what extent do you think that proved a formative experience? Were there any more sort of general learnings that you were able to take from that experience that have served you well for the rest of your career? Yeah, well, I would say this. When I was in Bandera, I, I, look, I was, doing, I was doing an MBA at Stern. Uh, and I was part of the Michael Price Fund. Look, I loved my time at Bandera, but you know, the, the truth be told, I mean, there are lots and lots of smart people in the States looking at a very narrow band of stocks and small mid cap stocks are extremely well covered. So it's extremely hard to add value in the very long run and beat the S&P 500. So what I saw was a lot of smart guys were not able to beat the S&P 500. And then I see, well, Michael Price essentially says, you want to go where the fish are. And so uh, here I am, Indian background, I've studied in the US, I've got my training there, and there's uh, growing economies, there's growing companies, and lots of companies yet to list, and family-owned businesses that are yet to list. And so I wanted to take that experience back and apply it in a less competitive place. But my training um, you know, during my time at Stern and, and Bandera was essential in giving me the toolkits for analyzing balance sheets and cash flow statements. Yeah, fantastic. And to round off your background and your previous experience, you uh, referenced your time at Goldman's Technology Investment Banking Unit, again, based in Asia. 
Uh, and we'll discuss Asia Tech in due course, as I've already mentioned. But were there any, again, more general learnings you were able to take from that experience? What did that teach you about investing in this space of the Asia market? Well, I got a frontline seat to Asia Tech. Some of the largest tech deals in the region, China, India, and Southeast Asian markets were happening. And Goldman was, you know, if it was important, Goldman was on it. And so I got a frontline seat to witnessing some of the transformative Asia tech deals. And then it was also very important from a network perspective, both with the company uh, founders, CXOs at these important companies, right? Like in China, India, and nascent um, Southeast Asia markets, but also within the Goldman network. So many of my colleagues have gone on doing some really interesting things. And it's amazing. For example, a colleague of mine, you know, worked at, uh, you know, Ant, you know, Alibaba. So I'm very, it's easy enough to sort of try to understand what's really happening. And I think that network was really important. And then I think the final point there is when you think of Asia with a population of, say, 4 billion and the world's greatest companies, Apple, Microsoft, Google, Tesla, Facebook, they're all growing and investing heavily in Asia. And so that gave me a frontline seat to also understanding global deals and how Asia was so important. And, well, you better understand Asia. And so connecting those dots um, was something that was a great experience at Goldman. Yeah, fantastic. And I think that gives really nice context to the rest of the interview. So let's now move on to to cover your investment philosophy and the fundamental facets of your approach. Uh, Since the Buffett letter and the aversion learnings you were able to gain from that experience, you have since sought to identify exceptional businesses and invest like a business owner. Why is that so crucial? Well, um, I think at the end of the day, right, like the goal as I said, is to compound at the highest rates possible. And the way that makes sense to me is investing in identifying the world's greatest businesses and investing only at extraordinary prices. So they're both very important. Now, to your question, a company is a productive enterprise. It you know generates cash or doesn't generate cash, but the purpose is generate cash and reinvest and grow. And that's a you know a company, a productive enterprise. Now, a business owner mentality is uh, taking a part ownership in such an enterprise. Now, stock straight daily, it makes little to no sense other than the purpose of giving liquidity for traders. But, you know, let's think about it. Do you take a monthly, quarterly, even annual view to your career or house or kids or, you know, uh, health? No, we don't. So I think from that perspective, Taking this business owner mentality, like you're a part owner in a great business, for example, say Apple, right? You're a part owner in Apple. And that that's what makes sense to me. I think it's uh, it's a given that, you know, market timing, etc. is a fool's game. And I think that eventually you sort of just can't do that. And so from the only only way I know is is being a business owner. Yeah, absolutely. And as you mentioned a moment ago, the other fundamental part of that, I suppose, is focusing on extraordinary valuations, which certainly strikes me as a relatively unique part of your approach. How are you able to find those within great businesses? Yeah, I think I think I think that's a great question. Essentially, what I've done, Hayden, is, um, I, as I said, I've created this framework, which I've spent thousands of hours on, right, through reading, but thousands of hours in version. So I sort of looked at what worked, right? Like I studied history over 20, 30, 40 years. 
and looked at all the stocks that did exceptionally well, like compounded 30, 40%, 25% over long periods, and then all the stocks that didn't do well, right, over long periods and what happened. And I tried to sort of, history repeats, I mean, in a different sort of way, but the key characteristics remain the same. And so what I did is I've created this framework, which is proprietary to me, um, which helps me with my idea generation and speed tracks my research process. And I've identified the world's top 1% businesses. Now, um, they are in s- different buckets, right? Like um, there, there's like, let's call one bucket, the entrenched companies. These are entrenched leaders, they're growing cash flow, they're growing profits. They have cash on the balance sheet. They have very high returns on capital versus cost of capital, but they're entrenched. You're not going to find them at great prices um, 95% of the time, but you need to get your research ready. So you're ready when that opportunity strikes like, like it would, uh, say, during 2020, 2008. There's drawdowns that you really want to be ready. And that's kind of where the process comes in. So that's the first category. The second category is these smaller, lesser known companies that could be in the entrenched category. And these could be like 10, 20 baggers, right? The first category, you're not going to make 10x your money investing in Apple at this stage. Well, I don't, you know, the, the, the law of just large numbers. And so the way I do it, Hayden, is first is just identifying these great businesses. There's a lot of work to get there, right? And then having a very disciplined um, process to understand what makes this business great. So that, that part's essential. The extraordinary valuations, again, there's a framework. Um, the three things I look for is number one, growth, right? The first thing is how long can they grow? What rate can they grow? And how predictable? So it's not just tomorrow's revenue growth, but all three elements of that. So my valuation piece kicks in with that. The second piece is return on capital, right? Versus cost of capital, right? So it's the spread that I'm concerned with. So Kobayashi, for example, the return on capital is 50%. Cost of capital is almost zero. So there's a huge spread of 50. What I want to know is how is that spread going to trend over time, right? Is it is it getting narrower or is it getting wider? And the third one is the cash it generates and adjusting it for its core business. So those are three essential pieces. And the framework captures these three pieces in the context of the extraordinary business. And then I compare it to opportunity costs, for example, whatever, you know, risk-free rates, et cetera. And I, I look for no-brainer trades. And um, this just means you're ready when opportunity strikes. And um, we might need a totally complete session just to discuss mm-hmm. uh, the, the valuation part, but I hope that gave you some sort of flavor. Yeah, that gives a really nice overview of that framework. Um, and we can certainly have another session, uh, maybe further down the line to cover that off completely. But I guess the next, and certainly it seems to me a, a quite a central part of that approach is your time horizon. It seems to me that it would be little use doing this over an incredibly short-term time horizon. And in doing my reading before the call, it does seem that you do employ a long-term time horizon, investing over 10 years or more. So perhaps you can explain why that is. Well, um, you know, uh, the as I said, my goal is to compound at the highest rates. And the way that makes sense to me is investing in the world's greatest businesses 
when you get them at extraordinary prices. As I've explained, we have different buckets. So there's entrenched, there's smaller companies, there's fast growing, but public venture type bets, there's cash cows, slow growing. So there's different categories. Now, when I studied history, there were no hundred baggers in a two year period. I mean, it just doesn't happen, right? Like it could happen, but look, it's probably a lot of leverage. It's probably some luck. There's probably some stock price manipulation, but to create shareholder value over the very long run, number one, you got to think like a business owner. And number two, it just takes time. I think a hundred bagger, like six, seven years. So the longer you hold, if you're holding a great business and your entry point's great, I mean, the optionality with like a great business, for example, Amazon, like in 2000, I I wrote a post on LinkedIn on Amazon. I mean, this company was trading at just like about 10 times cash flow in 2010. So it was a very known company. It was generating about two and a half to four billion dollars. It's there in plain sight, very cheap. But guess what? It's got this huge optionality. They've invested in AWS, Prime, Alexa, Kindle. The culture is just great. But to benefit from that, Hayden, you need hold of stock for a long time. And so it's essential. I I think you can't be going in and out and expect great things. Um, Yeah, so that's what I would say to that specific question of yours on the the horizon. Yeah, no, completely agree. And again, makes a lot of sense. And uh, in terms of the characteristics of the businesses that you're looking at, you've talked about your framework, uh, which gives us a really good sense of how you assess valuation. But I read, um, again, before the call that you look to identify businesses that can endure the risk of impermanence. So I guess, conversely, you're looking for businesses that have that status of permanence, relatively speaking. Can you explain how you're able to identify that in businesses for the listeners? Look, it's very hard and it's a constant research process. I'm not going to I'm not going to tell you that I can tell you now this business exists well in 20 years as a substantially larger business. It's an evolving research process. But what I'm looking for is exceptional businesses that defy, survive and thrive in long periods. Right. So if you if you just go back 20 years, right, which seems like a long time, but really is a very short time in history right? Which is when I was getting started investing, right? That's when I was getting started. GE, General Electric was a $500 billion business. Today, it's a $70 billion business, right? I don't think anyone could have told you, I mean, that was going to play out. Cisco was a $370 billion business. Now it's about half, right? Now this trend is of dominant businesses, rarely state dominant. This trend is visible in Chinese markets as well. For example, 2000, China Mobile was one of the most dominant. I mean, many of these today's businesses didn't necessarily either exist or were dominant. And this trend exists in Japan. I've studied history. And so I looked at a lot. I look at a lot of data day in and day out, day in and day out, seven, six days a week. So in Japan, the same thing exists. What I found was that what is dominant today rarely stays dominant unless they have a few key characteristics. And we'll talk about that, right? So what I said is, look, Sid, if you're going to buy a business and you're going to hold it, right? Um, number one, it's a constant research process. You can't just buy and just completely forget you. You're tracking the business, making sure it's making. So that's what I call trying to find a business that stays great and is getting greater or at least stays great. And some of these examples that I mentioned um, you know, faded away. So what are the key characteristics, right, of a business 
that will endure. I think the first thing, Hayden, is consumers absolutely love it. Mm. You cannot defy, survive, and thrive long periods if your customers just don't love your product. I mean, it's true for you. It's true for me. You know, people just have to get tremendous value from the company. Happy customers, right? Like you think about the greatest businesses, Google, Apple, et cetera, Amazon. I mean, they delight customers. Kobayashi delights customers. So that's the first thing. The second thing is crisis period track record. So what I do is my framework goes back 30 years. I've got cash flow statements of every company on the planet mined for 30 years, right? So I I look at the growth in cash flow is one of the most important metrics for me as to how it does during crisis periods. And I plotted this out for every company on the planet. And so I, I look for a track record in crisis. Now it's different for younger companies and that's different. And that's why you value them differently. But the crisis, can this company survive crisis periods? Obviously, you know, Kobayashi had survived many crisis periods. So it meets that bar very clearly. Amazon had survived a near-death experience, you know, run by the same founder owner. The third thing is the culture. This is an extremely important but ignored aspect of investing. Mm. I I think in terms of culture, here's what I would say. There are three key parts to this. The first is decentralization. You can't stay great if you are run like a autocratic, like there's a decentralized culture, right? You take Berkshire, for example. It's a very decentralized culture. I don't think Mr. Buffett is interfering in, you know, day-to-day operations. He just lets managers run the way they they like, right? Mm. Kobayashi had this example of a decentralized culture which is this idea generation. If you just read the annual reports, it's very clear. And then once I met the company, I was like, wow, this is amazing. Now I know why Mr. Buffett really liked this idea. It wasn't luck. Um, The second thing is you want to empower employees, but you want to structure the incentives in the right way. Because you can have a decentralized culture or whatnot, but if your incentive structure is flawed long-term, it's going to fail right? So that's a very important aspect. And I think, you know, uh, Kobayashi had that in droves. The incentive structure was long-term and it was focused on return on capital versus cost of capital at the mid and junior levels for companies or products. And uh, so those are, those are three things I would say. Now, just taking a very small example, if you look at Amazon, for example, I think the third aspect for the culture is it's okay to fail, right? It's okay to make mistakes, but make sure they are small mistakes and you learn from them. And what's amazing about the Amazon culture and why, why I'm a fan of Amazon as a, as a company, not necessarily as a stock, is they make small bets, which have just transformed the company. In 1990, when, when the company was founded, there was no AWS, there was no Kindle, there was no Alexa, there was no Prime, and there weren't a host of other uh, innovative projects. To come. But, but this company... That just like puts resources in small projects, and they were like, "Well, it's okay to fail." And having that culture, so the three, the four points that I talk, consumers absolutely love it. The second is the company can endure a crisis period. The third is the culture, and within culture, it's decentralization, it's empowering but structuring incentives, and then the ability to fail and learn from them. But remember, small bets, not big bets, right? So that's that's sort of what I would what I would say. 
Yeah, that's fantastic. Really actionable sort of list of insights that our listeners can go and take away and hopefully apply to businesses out there that they're looking at. Um, and actually, I think that provides us with a nice juncture to move on to to current markets um, and to explore further that conversation we started at the start of the call, which was, of course, on Asian markets and that Japanese company more specifically. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. Um, let's start with the tech crash. Uh, everyone will have uh, read about it and heard about it. All UK investors uh, listening into the call will very much be aware of it as well. I read uh, your recent LinkedIn post, um, which kind of broke down this year's tech stock market crash. You identified that businesses that dropped 70 to 90% um, a lot of these were kind of growth oriented with far less free cash flow compared to cash cows like Apple, Google and Microsoft. Uh, they've obviously suffered less severe downturns. So why is free cash flow specifically so important to identifying and valuing businesses effectively? That's a great question, Hayden. And, and you know, this is how I've been for the last 15 years. I've always start with the free cash flow statement. I look at the cash flow statement. I adjust them. I make my own deductions and I come up with an estimate of how much cash this company generates over not just this year or next year. I look at a 20 year statement, right? And I make all the adjustments. Anything that I think needs to be adjusted, I adjust that, right? It's the first statement. I look at the balance sheet. That's very important. And then I go to the income statement. So most people do it the other way around. Mm. Um, I think uh, if you just look at some of the greatest businesses, Apple, generates $130 billion in free cash this year. Google, approximately $65 billion. Microsoft, $55 to $60 billion. That's great and extraordinary just by the absolute figures, but that's not what makes these companies great. What makes these companies great is because the cash is recurring. We're using Apple, Google, and Microsoft every day. It's ingrained in our habits. And that's when I, it comes back to those points I mentioned. Consumers absolutely need it and love it. And there's little to no ability for price negotiation, which was exactly the same case with Kobayashi. Japanese consumers don't negotiate with Kobayashi on their products. So what makes this, this cash flow focus is, number one, is very important but you got to ensure that the cash is recurring in nature. We need these companies every single day. So free cash flow is important today or in the near future. But if you don't have it, let's talk about it. Let's say you don't have it. And it's fine for a young company not to have it. I'm not penalizing a young company for not having cash flow. But let's just look. at If you don't have it, you have to borrow debt or you raise equity. Mm-hmm. Or if you don't have it over an extended period, you're going to be bought out. You rely on external circumstances. And I'm, I don't think in investing, you want to rely on external circumstances. And Mr. Buffett said, you know, he doesn't want the kindness of strangers, right? So that's my philosophy as well. And I also believe, Hayden, from a valuation perspective, all these metrics like revenue, EBITDA, et cetera, are just, it's just a fool's game. So I just wanted to touch on, I sort of, I think this tech crash, right? Mm. If you look at some of these tech stocks that are down 90% this year, right? you have Peloton, you have Carvana. These were hedge fund darlings, hedge fund darlings. They generate no cash flow and they have net debt balance sheets. I mean, it's great during a bull market, but this is not really investing. 
in my view, right? You look at stocks that are down 70 to 90%. And by the way, there are some incredible gems out here, but just broadly, you look at, you know, C in Singapore, or you look at uh, Coinbase, Block, uh, KE Holdings in China, uh, Grab in Singapore. Mm. Um, you look at some of these companies, Zoom, by the way, is down. I, I love Zoom. I, you know, it's down 70 to 90%. There are opportunities, but if you look at them by and large, many of these companies don't generate significant and recurring cash flow. I mean, some of them are great businesses. For example, C is a great business. I like it. I just think it's too expensive. And then you look at the stocks that are down lesser, let's say 30, less than 30 to 50% over the last 12 months, Amazon, Tencent, uh, some of these companies. And then you look at stocks that are down even less than 30%. It's Microsoft, Al- uh, Alphabet, uh, Samsung, Keynes. And then you look at stocks that are um, not down at all. Actually, Apple, as of yesterday, was flat for the last 12 months. Mm. So that just comes back to my point that focus on the sustainable recurring cash flow is is very important. It just plays out in the data. Yeah, absolutely. And that's such an interesting overview of a lot of names that will resonate with everyone listening in, I'm sure. Uh, And it was very interesting, again, in the same post where you underlined that price uh, and the price an investor pays for a stock is the only thing really within their control. But how do you avoid overpaying for some of the good businesses that you've already talked about, i.e. one that exhibits all the characteristics and most of the fundamentals we've discussed so far? I'm extremely patient, Mm -hmm. right? I think that I'm not looking for 20 ideas. I'm looking for three to four great ideas, like no-brainer ideas, right? And in a universe of 30,000 global listed companies, of course, my my universe is significantly narrow. I'm focused only on the top 0.5%. So say, call it 150 companies that I actively read about. Mm -hmm. You're going to find three or four companies that are really, really significantly undervalued. And you know what? Sometimes the gravity of uh, extreme undervaluation is quite extreme and sometimes it's less. But you're always trying to allocate your capital towards those uh, ideas. And so number one, it's a framework where I've spent tens of thousands of hours, right? It's proprietary. I've come up with this list. I spent all my time on this list. I don't spend my time on reading any any filings outside this list. I just don't because I want to be the best at this, right? And then it comes down to being patient. You have to have that business owner mentality. My father has built a business for 40 years. He does not spend his time on anything else. So I've learned that you got to, you know, I mean, focus as a business owner. So it's, it's framework, it's patience, and it's taking a long-term view. I will repeat There are three key points that I factor in when I come up with how to value a business. They are growth, but how much, how long, and how predictable. So it's not just enough to have 30% growth next year, but how long, how much, and what rate, and how predictable. Predictable meaning, is it going to be cyclical? Is it, you know, Mm. the second is return on capital versus cost of capital. What is the return on capital? What is the cost of capital? What is the spread? Not just now, five years from now, what's it likely going to be? Look, Apple's return on capital is like 100%, right? Or it is it, very high. Or Google is very, very high. What is the cost of capital? It's negligible. 
I mean, it's, it's you know, the cost of debt and equity, it's not much. So the spread is huge. So we, we need to take a view, what is this spread going to be like, right? Three, five. For some companies, it's easier. Where it's hard, I just skip and move on. The third part is the cash. Apple generates $130 billion in cash. Let's take Apple, for example. Generates $130 billion in cash. It's enterprise value. Sorry, I don't have it in front of me. But um, let's just call it, the last time I looked at it, was trading at a 6 to 7% cash flow yield mm. today. Now, treasury yields are about, say, three, I haven't looked at, but three and a quarter or three and a half um, 10-year treasury yields. So essentially, uh, obviously, I'd be crazy to invest in uh, the, the 10-year bond when I can get Apple stock at a 6%. But this is this year's cash flow. And Apple may have issues in China. It may have issues in um, with its supply chain. So I don't think it's a no-brainer price yet. So I wouldn't buy Apple at this price. But I have written down a price on my framework for every single stock that I cover. Mm. Or that's what I endeavor. And I have this price written down. And when it hits, I'm ready to act. And so um, it's always comparing what my opportunity costs are. So those three things that I'll look for, it's, all, it's, it's, being, it's being ready, it's being patient, having that framework, and then saying, okay, this is sort of where the company trades. Let's say things go wrong here. This is kind of what the bear case would be. This is what I, I'm always looking to buy it at the bear case sort of multiples. Like it, it needs to be um, just incredibly, and, and we could talk about one stock, which I like, which is Alibaba towards, you know, uh, when we get to the Asia section. Um, but I'll stop here on the, on the, on the valuation piece. Yeah. It's actually the one piece, Hayden, I would like to say that is the most abused by fund managers. Mm. I see very few investors really, really, anyone can buy Apple or Amazon. It's buying it at the right price and holding it. That's where people differ. And that's where I seek to differ. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. I think that's a really good point. And actually, I think we can move on to uh, China tech and specifically Alibaba. Now we've covered Asia tech relatively broadly. Let's focus in on China. Um, I think it's safe to say the time to be greedy in China tech has probably been and gone. But I heard your interview on CNBC recently where you suggested there are still good value uh, investments and opportunities in this space, most notably Alibaba. Uh, people have labeled the stock a value trap. But why do you think they're wrong? Talk to us about why you're, why you're bullish on Alibaba at the moment. Yeah, well, if you just put in context, right, if you look at the China Internet ETF, it's actually outperformed the NASDAQ year to date by a, a substantial figure, right? Most Asian markets, by the way, have outperformed the S&P Dow mm. uh, NASDAQ this year. Indonesia is actually up, right? Like, I just wanted to put that in perspective. Mm. Now, China and tech stocks are on the minds of global investors from large endowments, pension funds, foundations. They all have trillions of dollars invested in China. And for good reason. China is the world's second largest economy. It has an 18 trillion GDP, right? Just behind the US and 22, 23 trillion. That's not a very wide gap. And Chinese GDP has come from just a paltry 195 in 1980 to $195 to uh, $13,000 today. And in some of the key cities, Hi, I want to reset the environment just because some of your viewers may not be familiar with some of this. And China's contribution to global growth in 1980 was just 1%. Today, it's 25 to 30%. So look, if you're a global investor, 
it's very hard for you to ignore China. Mm. I mean, you just have to allocate. Otherwise, your allocation to the U.S. just gets huge. And we know, as from today, that stocks, U.S. stocks don't go up all the time. U.S. tech doesn't go up all the time. You have to have, um, you have to be looking for the world's greatest businesses anywhere you can find them. And given the size of China, it's inevitable that you're going to have some really large businesses and you want to find them early. Mm. Now, coming to uh, China, right? I think what's interesting about China is that most Chinese and Indian companies can grow domestically only, right? Given 1.2 to 1.4 billion consumers. Now, Alibaba specifically, the, the, point, the point here I'd like to make, Hayden, is that this company is um, generating about um, uh, 10 to $15 billion in, in free cash mm. each year, right? This is, and this is, this is sort of, the um, this is sort of like the the bear uh, case, right? This company has been generating uh, ten to fifteen billion in a bear case. Like you know, in its heyday, it was generating about twenty to twenty five billion, right? Once you make adjustments for its investments, so let's call it the market cap is say two fifty or two twenty five. Again, I haven't looked at it recently, but it had retraced seventy percent below its three hundred and ten share price high. And this is when most tech investors were very bullish. As I said, it's easy to invest in a company, but it's the price that's very important. And that's where I pay very, very close attention. And you look at Alibaba, the cash position of the company, if you include long-term investments, it's almost a 40% market cap, right? Mm. The revenue of Alibaba is $127 billion last year. That grew 19% year over year. Despite the challenging environment, regulations, COVID, geopolitics, fines, etc., it was horrendous. It was the worst case possible. The company grew 19% year over year. Last quarter is what Wall Street's focused on, which is 9-10%. That's nothing to be, uh, you know, that that's not bad. Mm. Yep. But we shouldn't price it on the 9%. We should think about three years from now. Cloud revenues are $11.7 That grew 29%. Wow. Now, as I, as I mentioned, with Amazon's cloud business was a $10 billion business in 2016. And today, AWS is a $75 billion revenue business. Microsoft is a $60 billion cloud business. Google is a $20 billion cloud business. And Alibaba is just an $11.7 billion uh, cloud business, growing 29%. This is excluding one of the top customers, which uh, fell out for non-product reasons. And the business has turned profitable. So I'm, I'm looking at this stock and saying, okay, it's fallen 70, 80%. No one loves it. The cloud business is growing 30%. It's got to be significant. It's got to be a 25 billion revenue business just in three years alone, let alone 10 years. Think about digitalization, et cetera. And so from that perspective, Hayden, the odds are that the company's cash flow is going to be meaningfully higher three to five years from now. And and what the last part I would just say on this this Alibaba thesis mm. is the company has repurchased more stock this year alone than Amazon has repurchased in its entire history. Wow. In its history. So here, here I'm like, well, no one loves this. The company's fallen a lot. Now, I do think there are clearly risks. You know, Baba, by the way, is one eight to one tenth the enterprise value. There is some really bad news. The sentiment is terrible. Charlie Munger sold. Greg Alexander, Buffett likes, has sold. 
China is unpredictable. You know, the government's clearly made some moves that have shaken global investors. But that's why the stock is priced the way it is. It's not in China's incentive very long term to hurt some of these tech leaders further and further because these companies employ millions of people. Remember, Alibaba is a platform. So just putting on my common sense hat, I would think that it's just not in China's incentive to continue to punish these tech leaders who employ millions of people. To stay in power, the government needs to have a healthy and vibrant economy. And so I'll leave it there, Hayden. I'm sorry if I, I went slightly over, but I wanted to provide background on China and then coming to Alibaba. Yeah, no, I think that context is really important. And uh, the, the investment case for Alibaba has been superbly laid out there. And I was going to ask a question about sort of government regulation, the crackdowns we've seen on tech companies in the region as well. But you think, just to confirm, those are headwinds that are likely to affect the company over the short to medium term rather than the long term. Is that right? Well, you know, China is something that you want to monitor. I reserve the right to, of course, change my mind. If I see, if I, my common sense hat tells me that it's not, if I was President Xi Jinping to stay in power, well, you can't have mass unemployment. Mm. These companies hire millions of people. They create millions of jobs. How is it in his interest? Now, I, I understand what's happened three years ago. There was a monopolistic behavior, and I believe that you should not have excessive monopolistic behavior. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, this is essentially what they're trying to crack down. You know, there were some unhealthy parts, education, etc. Kids paying too much. I don't disagree with some of the things they've done. Now, I do think that they've done a very poor job of communicating why they're doing what. And it appears to be uh, vested interests. And that's sort of how it's come across to global investors. And I, I can't deny some of that. I mean, I think some of that is, is true. But thinking long term, if I was a leader of the country, how is it in my best interest to stay in power and then kill all the companies that, by the way, employ millions and millions of people? You're not going to be able to do that. No, I, I just don't think you, you could. Now, if I'm wrong there, Hayden... I will be monitoring this very, mm. very high end. And I, I constantly think about this, right? Mm. This has significant uh, consequences and repercussions for global investors, globally. Yeah. And if I, if I continue to see that there is more and more, I mean, it's just they, they, they just are uh, really cracking the whip on capitalism, per se, not the monopolistic behavior. Then I, I, I reserve the, uh, you know, I think the risk reward with Alibaba isn't great. But what, what I mean by that is, I still like the stock. You just may not get a um, 30% IRR. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I just think the upside would be capped. Yeah. Um, and, you know, from any investment process, I think you, you ought to monitor things. Um, you know, a lot of my friends are, uh, they're like, yeah, we're just not touching it, you know. But, uh, but, you know, I think, uh, I think there's a time to be greedy and there's a time to be fearful. And I think the, the time to be greedy is now if you take a very long-term sense. Now, if there's all-out economic war with the U.S. and China, if there's all-out, like there's a war in that part of the world, yeah, I mean, you know, you, you want to size things uh, in a different manner, right? You want to size things in a different manner. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, that makes complete sense. And it comes to me, I suppose, then at this point, just as we end the main body of the interview, to ask whether there are companies that strike you as sort of similarly c- 
compelling in their valuation, perhaps similarly well positioned like Alibaba is and possesses some of the similar characteristics and fundamentals that you run through for the Alibaba investment case. Is there any other companies within the Asia tech space that, that are similar that you would point out at this point? Well, of course, I mean, Tencent is one of the world's greatest mm. companies. I mean, this company has significant balance sheet uh, assets. I mean, just they're one of the best venture capital investors of all time. I mean, it's a fantastic company. Chinese consumers use it day in and day out. It's a part of their lives. You know, you want to invest in companies that consumers have little to no interest or ability to negotiate. When I was in China, look, you can't even order a meal. You can't pay for your meal using cash or credit. Everything is done wire Tencent or Alibaba. So look, that's a great business. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying the stock is great. I think there's a time to, to be greedy. Uh, I think that time is for Alibaba. I don't think Tencent is uh, cheap enough for me, mm. but uh, yeah. it's a great business. And, um, you know, I would say, uh, you know, coming from India, there's a lot of very interesting businesses in India I cover, which is somewhat more smaller mid-cap, which I can't discuss at this point. But India is a fascinating country. I mean, there's lots of opportunity. Uh, India GDP is just $3 trillion from $450 billion 20 years ago. The GDP per capita is just way too low. And we're going to see a multiple expansion. And there's going to be unprecedented just opportunity, I think, in India. And so that's a very rich, fertile hunting ground. Um, I would say, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it seems uh, another podcast to focus on India further down the line, perhaps touching more in depth on your framework would be uh, time well served. But at this point, let's move on to our quick fire question round. So this is a more generic list of questions we ask all of our guests and just a lighthearted way to end the episode. Feel free to answer in as little as one sentence or even one word. The first question is, what is the most frequent mistake investors make, do you think? I think it's thinking that the Mr. Market knows, uh, Mr. Market, like making him your guide versus your friend, right? Mr. Market's not your your friend. You should make him your friend. I think most investors, and I think, you know, a lot of smart guys, the trouble is they're too smart for their own good. Mm, yeah. And as Warren Buffett says, you know, the IQ, you want to shave off some of the, because some of these guys, and I, I talked to these guys, they're like super smart. They've got scholarships in all the right schools and they're looking to trade the stock and they consistently think they can time the bottom or get close to the bottom. And they're thinking about when to get out. And, and I'm like, well, this doesn't resonate with me. I want to take a business owner perspective. My father's a business owner. I think running a business is incredibly difficult and rewarding. But, you know, I have the luxury of wanting to invest in uh, in a handful of companies. Let's call it eight to ten. Mm. So I think that's the, the biggest mistake is not taking a business owner perspective. Yeah, absolutely. OK, well, question two then is where do you go for investment or economic insights? Do you read any specific publishers, any websites or newsletters, perhaps? What I read is uh, I read the filings. Mm. So I, I have I have these 150-odd companies. I read them consistently, and I update my prices, my wonderful prices. I monitor these companies really, really closely, the earnings structures, et cetera. And what happens as a result, Hayden, I'm getting real-time like sort of analysis based on kind of what companies are saying. Because remember, I mean, news media essentially, I mean, there's, there's some hit pieces and people write stuff for to sell pieces. I'm not interested in bias reporting. I'm really interested in the, in the facts. Now, beyond that, I, I do 
of course, subscribe to, you know, just read uh, some of the prominent publications, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, Bloomberg, uh, The Economist, uh, you know, and I subscribe to a bunch of like very interesting blogs, which I read every day. But keep in mind, that's just to stay abreast with some of the some of the more put in and say macroeconomics with oil prices or what's the politics situation regulate like some of those things mm. but from a company fundamental perspective i go straight into the company filings that's my best source right what what are ceos saying where are they investing what are the challenges um yeah yeah, no, that makes complete sense. Back to the source of the information rather than relying on the reporting of that information, which undoubtedly, I think a lot of the time I agree, tends to be relatively subjective and, and pretty biased in, in the worst places as well. Yeah. Um, so th- that's great. I think we can move on to question three, which is, and this can be a tricky one, but let's, let's give it a go. What is the most memorable moment from your career to date, do you think? Is there one moment that particularly stands out? Well, that's the easy. That's an easy one. I think the the receiving that note back, then handwriting saying Sid, keep your eyes open, mm. and he loved like the business was an incredibly emotional and like I was I was just look I just left my job at Goldman. I, I was working 120 hours. Mm-hmm. I was on track to become vice president. I went to the partner and I said, look, you know, and I actually met with uh, this extremely you know Ragamali, who's a partner at Goldman. He was my boss then. I went to him. I'm like, Raghav, you know, I'm leaving. And he said, congratulations. Uh, you know, where, which private equity fund or fund are you joining? And I said, well, no, Raghav, I'm taking a break. I'm just going to run my own money. He's like, why would you do that? <laughs> um, and then I, I wrote a letter to Mr. Buffett two months ago because I was like just full-time research. And that was the most memorable moment. I, I think it's hard to beat that. And a lot of the lessons, just looking back how Kobayashi's performed since, the culture, some of these dynamics, it become clearer in my mind. And that I think that moment set a very important um, framework for sort of the future. Yeah, I would point to that one. Yeah, absolutely. I can, I can definitely understand how that would be formative and certainly live long in the memory. So question four and our penultimate quickfire question. If you could go back in time and give yourself a top tip, what would that be? I think the the most important and the hardest thing in investing is you want to hang on to your winners, mm. right? Yeah. I think that the best investors, um, you know, in the UK, Nomad or whether it's, uh, it's Buffett, Monk, they hang on to their winners. I mean, if you look at Berkshire's 10K filings, I mean, he's got positions right from like a set, like ages ago, decades ago. So I think the top tip is I should, well, number one, start as early as possible and just get to the source, yeah. right? Don't necessarily rely on some of these very, start early, get, focus on this niche, whatever your niche is, let's say it's software companies or tech companies or oil companies, start, get all the filings, read them and monitor them and, and sort of build your expertise around them and slowly branch out. I started off like when I was working in Singapore, you know, China tech, that was my specialty. I covered them very closely and then all the companies there and then moved to India and then Southeast Asia. And I visited um, all the Asian countries and then hundreds of companies there. But you want to start out with your sort of niche. So the top tip would definitely be, you know, just take this Take a simple idea and take it very seriously and just get started. You don't need to go work at Goldman or McKinsey. 
if you love investing, you want to go right into it. I think time is uh, to your advantage. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's fantastic advice. And uh, I think that leads us nicely on to our final quickfire question, which is, and we ask everyone this, we try and uh, speak to the the fund managers, the investors, the analysts, anyone doing something a bit different, potentially trying to outperform benchmarks and index returns. We ask them, what is an investor's best source of alpha? If you had to narrow it down to one thing. Yeah, look, over a long period, because anyone can generate alpha in a year or three years, etc. There might be luck, etc. We have to put all that aside, right? If you, you have to study the great investors. And at the end of the day, what makes sense to me is this focus on the world's greatest businesses at extraordinary prices. As I said, the latter, the extraordinary prices, is something that I do not see in the fund management industry. I just don't see it talked about enough. And I see very loose work, you know, based on bullshit metrics, DCF, you know, we, we, we talked about this. And so I think that having this focus on great businesses at extraordinary prices is a great source of alpha. But I think that the important part here is avoiding very, very large drawdowns, right? Like you've seen this tech, uh, you know, bloodbath. Stocks are down 90%. Mike, you have some famous fund managers owning Carvana for example. It's down 90%. If you have 25% of your fund in in the stock, well, that's great on the upside. But what about the downside? I mean, that's really, it's not set up for like sort of, bump. you're going you're gonna to have your rate clients, et cetera. And so for me, I feel like, you know, um, we have to distinguish. I mean, is it luck? Is it skill? Uh, is it long-term? Is it over cycles? And what makes sense to me is really coming back to these really great enduring businesses where consumers are super happy, the culture is great, and you take a business owner perspective starting at the right price. And that's really important. So I'll, I'll leave it there. I know I've been repetitive in certain uh, instances, but I wanted to repeat for for the purpose of uh, you know making sure the point was very clear. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think it's it's definitely worth repeating and actually the perfect message to end the interview on. And I think that just leaves me to say thank you very much for joining us on the podcast, Sid. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Hayden. I really appreciate the opportunity. Speak soon. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. Co-fruition.